Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we are back in London. Yeah. Well, yeah. Flat 2020. Two years ago, we yep. were in this room, happily recording when when COVID was a thing in China. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we're overlooking Westminster Abbey, which is wonderful for me because I actually sang in a choir there when I was a back kid. Back in the day, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is the first episode that we're recording here at NDC London, but it's not the first one that we published. Yes. This is 1801. Yeah. We haven't done 1800 yet, which is our big onstage celebration. But that was last week's show. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's It's, time shifting is hard. It's hard. It's fun. (laughs) Anyway, Steve Sanderson is here. We have a lot to talk to him about. But first, we have this little thing we do called Better Know Framework. Roll the crazy music. Awesome. All right, man. What do you got? Well, this is uh, apt. Uh, I did a Blazor Train episode recently called Revisiting MVVM. This is episode 77. So I'm revisiting the topic of MVVM with Blazor. And what got me thinking about it was um, when we were in Vegas, I talked to Jeff Fritz. Right. And I asked him what he thought about is MVVM even necessary with, with Blazor? And he goes, no, nah, you don't need it. Interesting. And and this was kind of the first I had heard that sentiment, you know? And so then I, I reached out to Steve and I said, what do you think? Do, you know, do we really need MVVM? And Steve was very diplomatic, very <laughs> as, <laughs> as he, you are. As he always is. Uh, and he said, well, we built it to be agnostic. You know, you can use whatever patterns you want on top of it, but we built it so that it's self-sufficient and all that stuff. You know, if you read between the lines, you could say, he said, nah, but you know, he's not saying don't. No, he's not saying you're not doing anything wrong. No, you're not doing anything wrong. Yeah. Uh, reached out to a couple more people whose opinions I value and they all said, you know, no, it's not necessary. So I went back to, um, a blog post that Jeremy Lickness did back in 2019 mm-hmm. where he's thinking about mvvm and mostly he was thinking about updating components uh when view models change okay because that's you know the i notify property change thing is a that's big, what it's about yeah it's yeah. a big thing well you know and talking to these other people they're like well i notify property change is really good when you have different ui right you right. have like it's good for xamarin forms mm-hmm. maybe good for wpf it's necessary um, Windows Forms has its own thing. Um, yeah. and you know, w- with Blazor, there are other ways to do the same thing. I mean, state has changed is a great way. All you really thing. need is to, to do the notification. You could do that with events, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jeremy basically created this component that uses a render fragment. And, um, so, so it's some, something that you wrap around content. And when a property on a view model changes, you know, it basically calls state has changed. Nice. And so you wrap the view model in this component and anything inside it is going to update when, when that gets called. Sure. When a property gets set. So that was good. And of course I did MVVM back, you know, with Blazor back in the day, but I thought it was worth revisiting just because I respect Steve's opinion, Jeff's opinion, other people's opinions. And they're all saying, no, it's really not necessary. I mean, 
I would look at it from maybe a testability perspective. Like we can break down pieces, but I, I don't know that MVVM is that testable either. Well, Blazor is testable. I mean, yeah. you have B unit and you've got snapshot testing right, and right. things like verify. There's so many ways that you can test. Um, and you have one UI, you know, it's not yeah. like you it's have. It's not like there's an array of choices there and you're trying right. to figure them all out. Right. And yeah, the component fair. model is really, really robust and mm -hmm. it works with everything, you know. So that's it. Check it out. Uh, it's at Blazor Train, episode 77. We'll put a link to How it. How contemplative of you. Thank you. <laughs> So uh, that's what I got. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1622, which we did back in February of 2019 in the before times. Yeah. With Steve and Dan. And we were sort of getting the Blazer update, you know, again, in the before times. So it's a while ago now. Yeah. And this comment is from uh, John Chinoweth, who said, I'm a really great show. I'm a longtime listener, but it's my first time posting. I want to compile some legacy C-sharp code, which is an interesting thing, to WebAssembly to see if we can use it in our new Angular application. Hmm. All right, there's a guy having some fun. Uh, but this is for a government app, and we're using fairly restricted tools and hoping we can use Studio 2017, or at least some officially supported Microsoft way of compiling code. It seems like getting mo the MonoWASM tool to work is pretty complex for Windows 7. Again, government, right? Mm. Uh, also, it has not been updated in a year or so. It's kind of pre-alpha. I'd love any insight on this. And uh, Daniel commented back in the day and said, your best bet would be to reach out directly to the Mono folks and gave the link to the Mono repo on GitHub. And if mm -hmm. you've got problems there, they do do work on it. And uh, they, of course, even at that time in 2019, there was a lot of work on Mono to, do, to run in WebAssembly mm -hmm. as well. So it was probably a great solution. And, uh, and I hope it worked out for John. I don't know the answer to that, but it was three years ago. Yeah. But yeah, interesting to see what folks are thinking about and try, trying to find ways to solve problems using a little WASM in an existing site. Like it's not just all Greenfield. What's right? a little WASM between friends? <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, so, John, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or on the Facebooks. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, We'll send you a copy of music to go by. Wow. Like Impressive. That? Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. And definitely follow us on Twitter. Only done it 1,700 times. So <laughs> like, you think 1,800 I'm, now. No, 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 no. I'm the new guy. I only started it. Oh, that's true. Okay. <laughs> wow. It's hard for me to remember those days. <laughs> uh, definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. And there's no need to change the state. Nice. No need. No. Is Twitter changed? Works. Yes. Twitter's changed. Yeah. Twitter takes care of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Simple. So let's uh, uh, introduce Steve, Steve Sanderson. He's, jeez, uh, uh, you know, should I read your official bio or would it take it's too long? It's a little dated. Well, it's a little dated, but it, it's also changing. I mean, mm -hmm. you are the inventor of many, many, many things. <laughs> okay. I think it's quite of generic. You, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think of you as the, the guy who started the whole MVVM thing because of, uh, I mean, you, you say no, but. Well, you I, had the first framework for the web that did what MVVM does, Knockout, right? That's true, yes. Um, but I think in terms of originating MVVM, I, absolutely not. Because no, no, no. I, I know you didn't yeah, yeah. invent it, but yeah, yeah. The pattern was there. But yeah. what Knockout did was make it very approachable. In an early time in JavaScript, I think, 
You know, I just did the 20 year history talk. Yep. And of course, I, I always refer to you, but I refer to you on the WASM side, mm-hmm. which is a little unfair because you've done so many cool things along the way. So many. Yeah. It's but funny. not, I remember us talk, talking about knockout on the show as yep. part of this foundation with a few other libraries. We ended up calling them tribes mm. of, of, of an assembly of libraries to be very productive um, in web development. Right. To doing, doing forms over data in a really efficient way. And knockout was key to that. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Knockout was a, a way that I was found to simplify what I was doing in my, you know, my paid work at that time. I was right. doing a bunch of stuff with RxJS, reactive extensions for JavaScript, and sure. that made it possible to create this kind of MVVM-like system, which I found really provided a great user experience. But the development experience was um, was suboptimal. It felt mm. like you really had to have like a, a PhD in reactive extensions in order to make progress even in simple cases so knockout was just an attempt to get those benefits but without such a an elaborate set of requirements to define anything and i I think about the quintessential dog fooding of knockout was the azure portal which you did in knockout uh and so by the time blazer came around i really think that in you probably agree with me you really had a good sense of pain you know of what uh, how to simplify uh, markup so that it's less painful and less, you know, verbose. Yeah, I've certainly had experience of certainly using, but also creating a few UI frameworks. Um, I think by the time Blazor arrived on the scene, we were really in the heyday of React. And it was, I think React in many ways did the work to to say, hey, look at all the UI frameworks that have come before us. Let's consolidate this into one pattern mm. that everyone is going to be happy with. And yeah. You know they they really nailed that, and so Blazor was able to follow on uh, and make many of the same architectural choices that React did. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the main reasons why we've never particularly struggled to to have a good design around components in Blazor. We kind of just knew what that should look yeah. like. It is interesting that you do hit a point of a known pattern, like this yeah. is a path of success. Yep. And React did that consolidation at that time, mm. the sort of componentization yeah. of UI, and. Yeah, it's not like you used any of their code. No, of course. But you sort of, you know, we we stand on the shoulders of giants. Like, there's a solved yeah. problem, mm. a solved approach to this. We should just do it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, an interesting thing I've seen happen a couple of times when creating technologies is that things that you don't know, like your points of ignorance, can actually be the things that lead to really nice innovation. So, right. uh, for example, with uh, with Knockout, the, the thing I didn't understand was that... Um, other people thought that you would have to define all the different relationships between dependencies. Like it just didn't occur to me that that was meant to be the way things that were done. So I just yeah. made a way of doing it without that. And, and right. similarly with Blazor, I did no idea how React stiffing system work. I didn't read that mm. code or whatever. So <laughs> I had to just like create a different thing and, and was able to benefit from things that are distinctive about .NET in that way. The fact that we've got a compile process means that we can inject information into your code that at runtime means we can be much much more efficient right. than react more would dynamic. be able to be you know a general tree diff algorithm is like order n to the four or something like that which is like terrifyingly expensive whereas blazor's got a linear diff algorithm uh, just because we can inject all this extra info at compile time mm. um, that we can you know see what's going on more rapidly yeah there's not a lot of of at the time of execution having to figure out where to go you've, yeah you've already done that at compile time yep. so it runs really efficiently and the wonderful thing that how it how the component model evolved 
to be able to create a Razor component library that contains JavaScript and CSS just for this thing. And one of the things that I always hated about web development was the global nature of JavaScript and CSS. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, you know, how can you contain those things and yeah. make them, you know? Yeah, well, modern JavaScript has come on a long way with that. Like ES 2016 and onwards, that really did become a focus of the, the standards. And, yeah. and I think the JavaScript community has adopted that aggressively. Although I guess the arrival of TypeScript has really sort of yeah. almost knocked over the relevance of some of these standards processes because people are mostly going to write in something that compiles to JavaScript now anyway. Mm -hmm. right. um, I don't know. Some people are starting to make a claim that the pendulum will swim back the other way and mm. we're not going to have compilers anymore because, you know, JavaScript is going to be so productive that we don't even need TypeScript. But, you know, wait and I see on that see one. I don't see TypeScript as a, you know, optimization per se. It's a reliability thing. Yeah. It's, it's giving you meaningful warnings mm. before you ship your code that you may made some mistakes here. That's true. Yeah. Uh, they, they did come up with the idea recently, which was interesting, was uh, to make browsers natively aware of TypeScript syntax mm. so that you don't have to compile it. You just run the TypeScript just straight from your source code and the browser would just literally ignore all the compile annotations. So can you imagine? That's such an interesting idea. And I guess that was always the, when I think back to CoffeeScript and the like, there was all this possibility of someday mm -hmm. you'll just run this natively. Yep. It just never happened. I yep. mean, the Dart did that, but nobody used it. <laughs> or yeah. Well, now, if you're using Flutter, you use Dart. Yeah, sure. But then now it's a different runtime context. Yeah. It's the Flutter context, which is very different from the from the browser perspective. Yep. Yeah. So your your work with WebAssembly uh, is evolving here, and WebAssembly is evolving. And your thoughts uh, just attended your session. Um, your thoughts about where we can go yep. with, with WebAssembly kind of exploded my brain a little bit. Okay, that's good. And good I, stuff. Yeah, it was good in a good way. Uh, I like the demo that you did where you said, um, here's a demo of something you should never do. <laughs> but it turned out to be mind-blowing because, well, you can talk about that. I guess we could start with Wazzy, right? Yeah, sure. All right. So, um, yeah, there's definitely been a big push in in recent years to uh, consider if WebAssembly can move beyond the browser mm. and what kind of use case it right. could fulfill in server environments and how it could be involved in the future of cloud architecture. And I think that the industry is, is starting to wake up to this now. We're starting to see a lot of noise and momentum just in the last six months to a year. Uh, and the more people I talk to in this space, the more I keep hearing predictions about like, you know, this is really going to uh, come of age in the next year or two um we're yet to see if that turns out to be true but mm. uh, but yeah certainly the idea is to to take the the benefits of WebAssembly in a browser such as it's um the fact that it's completely independent of any particular operating system or cpu architecture mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the fact that it provides rigorous sandboxing and the fact that it can you know be compiled to from any language the fact that um it can run at nearly native speed or in, some people even theoretically claim it can be faster than native, which is weird, but I can try yeah, and explain. Counterintuitive, but yeah, okay. Um, and um, and yeah, and use it on the server as an alternative to other kinds of uh, containerization mechanisms, or as a universal application binary interface. So, if you want to define the programming model for any kind of cloud service, why wouldn't you do it with WebAssembly? Like right. You can then accept code in any language. You get that sandboxing. Uh, so you know that people can't do weird stuff to your server. 
Um, yeah, that's the, that's the theory. That's the promise. But isn't yeah. that what containers are for? This is what I hear the listener saying to them yeah. in, their, in their head. What's wrong with containers? Yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with containers. It's obviously revolutionized the software industry, and sure. we're not going to see them go away mm-hmm. anytime soon. But what if the manifest on your container said operating system any? Yeah, right. yeah, sure. Like you are also instituting an overhead when you say to a you know to a container, I need you to get to you know this instance of Ubuntu, like yeah. that. You know, they they giving you that executing context. What if that was irrelevant? Like in some ways, what you're also describing is very serverless in in that context, where it's like, what you what code do you want to run? Let me run it for you. You don't need yes. to define anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely a higher level abstraction than what a container mm-hmm. supplies. A container is basically like. Here's the bare bones minimum for what a Linux looks like. And now you can run a bunch of stuff inside that. And then to communicate externally, you'll be doing TCP level networking. And, you know, that basically your code inside there gets to do whatever it wants. It's like the king of its own little universe. Yeah, it's living in a sandbox. Make the biggest tower you want, whatever. But Mm -hmm. you can't get out of the sandbox. And and I defined an output for you. Yeah. Give me your output and then you're gone. So we're really talking about uh, a new OS. Right. If you think about it that way, that can run anywhere and you can compile it with any code. Yeah. Yeah. You could definitely think of it that way. Yeah. So, so WASI, I think its aspirations are a little more modest than being a whole operating system. It's a right. way of running this bytecode, which, you know, is platform independent and a way of defining what kinds of uh, f- functions will be made available for it to execute. Mm-hmm. So if you want to, create a web server then you could have a fun you could do it in multiple ways for example you the way that's most commonly done you could say all right here's a function that says start listening for http requests mm-hmm. and whenever you call that i'll start listening and then when the request comes in i'll call one of your functions that says please process this request and here's the url here's the headers and all mm-hmm. all pre-parsed and so you can do it at a high level way like that alternatively you can do it in a more low level way you could have a function that just says open a tcp listener you know send this these chunk of bytes to it and so on. And then you'd implement the web server on the inside. So there's a lot of flexibility in yeah. how that would work and, and how high level you want this kind of thing. I, to I, be. Like, I like to think of it as what the browser did for the client, uh, WASI does for the server side. Yeah, you could think of it that way. Yeah. So I suppose WebAssembly in the browser has opened it up to any language mm-hmm. um, and it's allowed people to write potentially more low level code if they want to. Mm. Uh, you can certainly do that. For, for server in terms of being independent of platform. Um, but yeah, there's also these more high-level scenarios where, uh, say, if the developer is creating some software as a service that they want their customers to be able to customize, mm. then maybe you will allow your customers to deploy a WebAssembly binary to your server that, I don't know, like it defines the the templates for some emails that get sent or something, and they can code that in any arbitrary language they feel like. It gives you a lot of options like that. So let's say we can compile these things to run on servers. What is the intersection with our existing containers? Or would we use them in lieu of our existing containers? Or would they run in a container? I mean, I have yeah. those are the kinds of things. We so all these options about. exist, absolutely. Yeah. And there are some projects at the moment that are about bringing WASI into containers. So there's mm. a thing called Crustlet, which is um, specifically a way of uh, using WebAssembly inside Kubernetes, and that runs as a little container. Mm. But there's other more bare metal ways of doing it. So you sure. could imagine extending Kubernetes so that it just knows about WASI or WebAssembly as an alternate format for what a container or a pod can look That's like. That's interesting. Um, and, you know, work is already going on in, in the open source world to do that kind of thing. Wow. Um, in the ultimate 
end case. Some people talk about uh, having a replacement for Kubernetes itself. Right. Um, but, you know, WebAssembly is only addressing a small fraction of what Kubernetes is doing. Right. I mean, you so, have to configure the host environment to yeah. tell your WASI application, yeah. for lack of a better word, what, what it can do, what it yeah. can't do. Yep. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, and, and now you get into define what a server is. Cause what you, as soon as you describe that, it's run anywhere. So I was immediately thinking IoT devices, like very yep, small, sure. out there on the edge somewhere kind of device yep. that I could just push code to execute, get some results back, and leave if necessary. Like it's all very, it could be very transitory if you wanted. Yeah, that's definitely a good option for the use of of WebAssembly. And the fact that WebAssembly has always been designed around um, highly constrained environments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people don't want to send large payloads into a into a browser, like not on the order of gigabytes, certainly. So, um, yeah, it's it's a good fit so for the, that kind of device. The binary file that would be this sort of compiled chunk of of uh, of WebAssembly would be pretty portable. You wouldn't care. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, certainly the theory. If you're compliant with the WASI spec, then you can run your code in any WASI environment. WASI right. gives APIs for things like file system access, some basic networking, which is being expanded at the moment, other things like random number generation and other sort of basic functionality like that. Mm. Certainly, if you stick to that particular API surface, then you should be able to run incredibly universally. Uh, but it's also designed to be extensible. So if you want to add your own primitives on top of those kinds of things, you can do that if you're the person who creates the host for the WebAssembly runtime. Um, obviously, that means that you've then got less portability, right. but it, it's for solving different use cases. Sure. I look at Crustlet and it looks like portable serverless. Yeah. Right. I mean, I know that under the hood, serverless always is running containers anyway. This is Kubelets for Kubernetes. So now this is this is a way for me to write. I mean, the, the problem I've had with serverless, whether you're running in Lambdas or you're running Azure Functions, so forth, is they are specific to the platform. Yep. And so the idea that I know I have Kubernetes everywhere. If I write in this WebAssembly format, I can run it as a Kubelet anywhere that the Kubernetes will run. Like. Yes, this, this, I don't think the cloud portability is that important. I think hybrid portability is important. That I can write code that runs on-prem in my Kubernetes cluster, and then I can also shove it to whatever cloud I want. It'll run there too. Yeah, yeah. there's that. That's there's, pretty powerful. Yeah, there's even slightly more sort of elaborate things you could imagine, like some application that runs in the cloud on the server, but if someone visits it in a browser, then the WebAssembly code migrates into their browser, you right. know, and then the rest of the application just starts running there. Like, and that that brings me to your your demo that you did. Oh yeah, yeah. Can you explain what you? Oh what yeah, you did so and I, why? I wanted an example of something um, perhaps unexpected that you can do. Um, we uh, we've got the ability to compile ASP.NET Core to WebAssembly to run it inside a WASI type environment. Oh wow! And um, so you know that that's been something I've been focused on for a, a few months. And um, once you've got ASP.NET Core as a WebAssembly binary, well, you know, another thing that famously runs WebAssembly is web browsers. So you can therefore run ASP.NET Core, the server inside your browser, if you want to. Right. Um, and then which, I hear people go, whoa, 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 wait whoa, a second. whoa. <laughs> and that's why you said you should never do this. I'm just saying you can. I'm just saying you can. <laughs> yeah. It's like technically possible is the best kind of possible, isn't yeah. it? So, oh, yeah. One of our teammates commented that. So, um, yeah. So th- it's not a good thing to do because... It gives up on the benefits of server-side programming. You can't sure. have any sort of security boundary around this code anymore. It also means you're delivering this potentially large binary payload to mm-hmm. browsers instead of just 
sending them HTTP requests. It's not not a thing you should do, but it just goes to show that this stuff is flexible and portable. This is what it means to be portable. Yeah. Well, and, and I th thought your I thought the way that you did it was you run it inside a service worker so that you yeah. can have multiple tabs hitting that same quote unquote server. Yeah. In the browser, running in a service worker. Yeah, service worker is so nice for this it, because it means that the the rest of the code doesn't even know there's anything funky going on. Yeah, it right. just does normal HTTP requests, yep. and they just get answers in the normal way. So you can contemplate a case where the overhead of pushing that code to the client because it's going to be used multiple times in a service worker mm. makes sense. Like it'll be a net more yep. efficient way to tackle this problem rather than doing the normal round trips and server each time. Like if I'm wire constrained and I know what the workload looks like, mm -hmm. I might find a case where mm. I'll take the overhead of the code push to yep. do a bunch of work on the client to have a smaller set that needs to go back. Mm. Yeah. Or you do it in the background, like while the user is doing some stuff. Right. Like you've got this thing running. Yeah. It's, it's sort of streaming down to the browser. And when it eventually gets there, your execution could transparently move from server to client. You yeah. Certainly imagine that for some Well, it like also Blazor. offers, I'm sure there's some details to make this work. It offers a disconnected option. Yeah. That's it. Right. They push that work onto the, uh, into the browser and then you go offline. Yep. And it doesn't care. Yeah. So you've, you've mentioned this scenario twice now. We really haven't explored it, which is you start with a Blazor server application and then as you use the application, your code gets migrated from a server app to a WASM app. And yeah. That, that really blows my mind because, or, you know, can you imagine like having attributes, right? And you say, I want this to eventually run on the client. I want this to eventually run on the client. And yeah. then just it migrates. Yeah. That sort of thing is certainly possible. Yeah. I wonder if there would be an interim layer there. Like, would it make sense to push that execution block into a cluster at the CDN? Like the trip back to the main server. That's crazy. Too talk. far. Right. Like, and I've done enough overseas work where I don't want this on the guy's workstation for mm -hmm. whatever reason. Yep. But there's a data center on that island. Yep. That I have CDN rights to that I could say, Hey, I want to position this code ex executed there. So now he's down to a 10 millisecond round trip. So he's super happy. Yep. And we have a, uh, an asynchronous push back to the main server, but I've never pushed the code to his workstation. Yeah. Yeah. That is definitely something people have started talking about because that, that does bring the security boundary back. Like the, your random person with the web browser, they don't get to control. They don't get the code. CDN. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you've got all the normal security guarantees of server side programming, but in an incredibly distributed yeah. cloud environment. Like well, an intelligent distribution that yeah. you can decide that I can get executed. I think back to like the original Silverlight and its whole, the streaming, what it was all about the streaming mechanism where it's evaluating the bandwidth available and mm -hmm. saying, okay, let's go up from 480 to 720. Adaptive like you could, streaming. Yeah, that adaptive streaming behavior. You can imagine that with your code. Mm -hmm. that you get to a point where it's like, this will execute more efficiently if we move this execution block closer. Yep. Not on them, but just closer. And you could even have stages for that, you know, based on how important it is to reduce latency. Yeah, definitely. That's a, a certainly very interesting architectural design. You can move from deploying to like three cloud regions to, you know, 20,000 right. regions. And you obviously you don't configure them one by one. You just tell the system. Push, um, push this as close as you can get to the yeah. customer. It's if like it, cutting off a rabbit's legs. Less hops. Oh. But I'm done. Yeah. The, the <laughs> dad <laughs> joke. <laughs> the dad joke. Okay. But also, you're not committing long term. Like, mm -hmm. this could literally be for this work session. Yep. Yeah. That this person works for 90 minutes. And during that 90 minutes, you move all of that to a local CDN that you're going to pay for the 
the 90 minutes that you were there. Yep. And then you shut it all the way back off again when they're done. Yep. Mm. So it's like, it's cloud on demand at that point. Yeah, it's very promising. It opens some interesting and perhaps difficult questions, though, about the data layer. So, mm -hmm. you know, sure. serving the UI like that works great because UIs are generally stateless. But what what is going to happen with the actual the state. data? Are we going to query all the way back to the sort of central cloud every time they do anything? Can we intelligently bring some kind of shard of the data right. into a cache more closely? Mm. I, I don't know. This is a it's a whole it's a whole other area. set of we need some yeah. standard models for what state is, and so the system can identify it as state, not just our code. Yeah, and whose state it is? What's the boundary around the right. state? Yeah, who, who needs to be able to see the changes that you're making? Yeah. How? What kind of eventual consistency will you allow, or how? Yeah, I guess there's a lot of work that's been done in this over the last ten years or so. Yeah, there's a bunch of known problem spaces in here, but it's also just having the choices and saying. When you know what the show the workload looks like, you have these choices and you can mm -hmm. make that work. Maybe it's a steady trickle back that it's just an asynchronous feedback to the primary store. You know, what are you pre-staged data wise? What have you pre-staged anyway? Right? Yeah, oh, I've got 50 customers in that area. So I've cached a bunch of data for them mm -hmm. anyway. And now other customers light up and they're just running local instances. Cause otherwise, you, you know, otherwise you're using that cache depending on the browser. And I don't want the executing code in the browser. I want it also beside the camera. You know what I really love about this conversation is the freedom to think creatively about yeah. all solving of these problems. possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely I mean, the possibilities problems. are just endless. Yeah, it's really interesting. And this is not what you went into this tech stack for. It's just <laughs> something that's emerged. And I, I find yeah. it delightful. Yeah. And gentlemen, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. There's always something new from our sponsor, Text Control. They just released version 30 of their document processing library that includes new document collaboration features. Using TX Text Control, you can integrate online document editing, document signing, collaboration, and PDF processing into your ASP.NET and ASP.NET Core web applications. Whether you need to create PDF invoices, quotations, or reports, TX Text Control provides the developer libraries for all document-related tasks. Check out the new features and see their technologies in action by visiting the live demo at demos.textcontrol.com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey, hey. Here in NDC London after two years. And we're back with our friend Steve Sanderson. And, I mean, just thinking beyond Blazor beyond, and just this idea of WASM as this container opportunity this execution block that could be run in all sorts of locations the ultimate in uh yeah the the ultimate in portable applications yeah i think about a sensor ran an iot device that you know has a steady set of data some of the time but then also might need to do a special mode like i need you to look at a higher resolution and so just being able to push that code down mm -hmm. to do this particular run for a certain amount of time one sensor at higher resolution and then step yeah. back again and rather than having all that code preloaded it's just shifted as needed yeah yeah there's, there's tons of benefits to that the the platform independence aspect of it is, yeah. is a big deal as well like particularly if you if you're an iot manufacturer that has got heterogeneous hardware that mm -hmm. you need to support got different um chips different little boards that you need to run on um, having to be able to deploy live updates across all these different technologies different versions of operating systems right. and stuff it's just a it's expensive a difficult process yeah. to do that if you can have a single universal binary format that's going to perform well across every bit of hardware 
that you've got, then, you know, that certainly can lower your costs and simplify. We haven't even talked about, you know, um, desktop applications, yep. virtualization. We, you've been talking about on, on the run as side for years, mm -hmm. virtualized applications, yeah. you know, that don't, that don't have to have anything, uh, pre-installed dependencies in the operating system. Yeah. They just run. I yeah, kind of like that idea. And we've got the, you know, the virtual desktop has been the sort of brute force hammer and all of that. Yeah. But, yeah. but also the, the, the desktop container. The main thing is that an application right. has a manifest where it's like, this is the OS. These are the ports I'm going to need. These are the resources I need to access so that we can set a very coherent security boundary around all of that. And, and then actually where it runs kind of irrelevant. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. That when it comes to desktops, my, my gut sense is that existing containerization technology might already be a good match yeah. for that because the overhead of uh, like an Alpine Linux distribution is under five megabytes. Mm -hmm. That's that's not a lot to pay for a desktop application. Mm. Um, I guess you'd be concerned about things like sandbox escape at that point, um, depending on how much you're right. relying on the containerization. And local resources, um, yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't know how, how worried I am about that. Like it, the bottom line is those perimeters, if those perimeters are breached, you got problems no matter what. Mm. So, you know, that's the job to, to make sure that we're sticking, that we're following those rules. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I can take that point. But at the same time, we've got browsers which already by run. design accept completely malicious code. Yeah. And, and they're successful. There's at that. no way to get out. So yeah. it's like, you're basically advocating just keep, keep writing blazer apps. <laughs> like why, <laughs> right, yeah. why wouldn't you be? And I mean, the other interesting part about this is if, at some point, there's going to be a runtime that isn't mm -hmm. a browser. Okay, yeah, to, to make a rich web UI that's not a browser. I guess you could imagine, yeah, we've already got PWAs, which to an end user feel like a runtime. Feel like an app. Browser. Like, um, if you PWA that thing up enough, they don't know they're yeah. a However, the implementation across browsers of PWA features is, isn't is consistent. Long. Yeah, um, that's true. I'm thinking of Safari in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Safari doesn't allow notifications in a yeah. PWA app. It is frustrating, certainly, if you're trying to build. Damn frustrating. They are the, and I said this on stage today, they are the new IE6. The right? IE6. They're yeah. popular <laughs> and not compliant with standards. They're, we, they're trying really hard to change that impression so. right now. Yeah. I, I hope that gets backed up by actual changes to, say, the feature set for PWAs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see on that. Yeah, because as soon as you stick it to the developers, it's like, and you have to do something different for iOS, for, for Safari implementations. Mm -hmm. And that, again, reminds yeah. me of the old IE6 where... You built a web page that worked for everything, and then you did something else to write. So. But if I put my evil hat on, I looked at Richard when I said that. Nice. Um, I didn't expect you to actually have an evil hat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very funny. If I put my evil hat on and say, well, does does Apple really have any incentive to make uh, to keep innovating and keep up with Safari? Because mm -hmm. what they really want is people to make iOS apps and put them in the App Store. Maybe they do. Yeah, I don't know. But they they're going, they do have to compete against the existence of cross-platform apps. Sure. Already. And, and look at the heat they're getting from the EU right now yep. to allow other browsers to really run. Like, yeah. you can put the Chrome icon on an iOS device, but underneath, it's still WebKit. Yeah. And But now the EU is saying point blank, nope, you need other browsers to run. And that's really the solution. Yeah. If you can't keep up with the standards... We're going to make you run other browsers so we can use them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's an interesting thing, though. Keeping up with the standards, like who decides the standards and what are their well, incentives? When you look at you that know. group of people, it is Chrome people, it is Edge people, and it is Safari people. I mean, that's mm. you look at the Firefox. guys that are on that board. And yeah, and, and Firefox the, is still in the, game. the Mozilla folks, right? But it is the folks making the browsers that are largely talking about this and yeah. helping to push the standards for mm -hmm. them. 
and then turn around and making the implementations. You know, like I'm looking at the sync time between the latest ECMA specification and implementation in browser, and it's weeks. Like they pretty much agree on something, mm-hmm. and boom, it's in the pipeline. Hey, here's a tip for you. If you've been uh, frustrated because you want to capture a video with Camtasia or something like that, or take a screenshot of a video in Chrome or Edge, you can't do it. But in Firefox, you can. Ah, okay. Firefox is the only browser that I know that you could run a YouTube app, uh, run a video full screen, and use Camtasia or something to actually capture it. Yeah. Probably a vulnerability they'll patch soon. That, uh, now they will. <laughs> Maybe I should have just shut up and used it. <laughs> so uh, when you when you go home, uh, at, well, you work from home, right? So when you go home or you, you turn off work, are you always thinking about, you know, what what else can we do with with WebAssembly that we haven't thought of now? I mean, are you always thinking like, you lay there in bed at night. He's like, what else? <laughs> I do unfortunately think of these things more than I should. Like the <laughs> the WebAssembly, the ASP.NET Core, and the server in the browser thing I came up with while I was in a sauna somewhere. Like, probably shouldn't have been That's thinking awesome, about that no. at that time, <laughs> but I was. Um, it was yeah. a very impressive thing. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I don't know. I don't know what else we'll do with WebAssembly. You know, it feels like it's a broad open space that there's a lot of excitement and, and innovation going on around there. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot to be seen, a lot of, a lot to be played for. And um, if you look at the, like the, what the startup community is doing at the moment, there's, there's a real scrabble, I think, to try and claim um, some of the, the big pieces of that space, like who are going to be the big names, who's going to be the Docker, but for WebAssembly. Yeah. You know? I don't think you want to be Docker. <laughs> well, all right. Poor Docker. Isn't, wait a minute. Isn't, WebAssembly kind of like Docker. I mean, isn't it? Except it's not owned by anybody. It's a group of browser makers saying, yeah, okay, we'll do this the same way. Are you involved in the WebAssembly group? Um, So I am part of the WebAssembly standards group, Mm -hmm. but my involvement has been pretty minimal simply because the the space that I work in is more high-level UI-focused work. But, you know, it is important for us to keep aware of where things are going and what we can do at the lower levels. For example, uh, the introduction of multi-threading into WebAssembly, something yeah. we want to bring into uh, .NET and WebAssembly as well. So we need to you know, stay in touch with what's going on there and perhaps influence it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, listeners might be thinking, well, I can do async await, but that's not yeah. multi-threading. Is yeah, it? no, we mean literally multiple threads that are running at the same time. Right. So I couldn't create a new system threading thread in yeah. a WebAssembly app. I couldn't do that today. No, that won't work today because, um, well, browsers uh, have always built their WebAssembly runtime on top of the existing JavaScript runtime, which has always had this single-threaded thing going on, which has worked amazingly well, considering Mm. how much, you know, people would have said that was a bad idea if you told them in the mid-90s. But Mm. nonetheless, it's been very successful. Um, But maybe we're reaching the end of the line for that that level of uh, thinking, given that CPUs are now so... Uh, so focused on having a lot of cores, yeah, the right. idea that you'd be limited to just using a single core starts to seem a bit of a question. It's archaic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like multi-core. Multi-core is table stakes. That's where you're running on. Even some of the littlest IOA, I, IoT devices now mm-hmm. actually have more than one core. In them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Little ESP32, like it, it's crazy. It also lends itself very well to what you might think of using IoT for, right? People go to WebAssembly and IoT because they want performance, yep. you know, and they to parallelize that performance is 
you know, for the kinds of things that people are going to run. Yeah. That uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And without having to own the code to paralyze it either. It's like, right. hey, here's some stateless things for you to run. Yeah. And just run them wherever you can run them. And they should just yeah. happen that way. Right. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting units of work that you can push out and, and run in a lot of different forms. So it's WASM everywhere, is it? Well, maybe it will be. We'll <laughs> see. I mean, not sure if it'll ever catch up with Java and its three billion devices thing, but you know. It's been three billion devices for a long time. <laughs> yeah. It never doesn't seem to go up or down. It's mm. very strange. Maybe they lost the source code for that installer and they've just had to keep using the same, same number yeah. over yeah. and over and over again. Yeah. This is a lot of devices out there now, but it, it would be interesting to think in terms Isn't of... Isn't it really funny, though? I mean, everybody knows this inherently who's been around, but it's the very early days of .NET, Microsoft was you know, going against Java, and it was definitely .NET, C-sharp, obviously learned a lot from Java and took from it and innovated. But at the time, you know, Java was like the thing. Java and Linux were like the enemies, right? Mm -hmm. And then, as it turns out, Java got less and less cross-platform, and .NET became completely cross-platform. Yeah, I but, just think it's... Java also, the JVM ended up with all more languages on it, too. More languages, right. Right. <laughs> like, right. So much for all the original plans. There was the any platform, plans. one language? No, not anymore. Right. And uh, and once upon a time, you know, like, it, it, .NET was many languages, one platform, but that's yep. not true anymore either. Weird, and on the UI places. side of Java, like the spring stuff, when you saw that they were actually compartmentalizing the, you know, or containing the, the native UI things, you wondered why it took two clicks to get inside of a of of, a, of an input field <laughs> instead of one, you know, whereas the browser is just like Here you right go. there. Yeah. Maui's coming down the pipe soon. It certainly is, yeah, yeah. very soon. See, the, there's a couple of good previews out. Like, it seems very close now. You know, you we started this conversation. We were talking about, you know, in some ways, Blazor's got it easy because the UI stack is pretty coherent. But now yeah. it looks like we're going to have more diversity in, yeah. in UI. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, Maui adopts a, a position that UI should look and feel in a way that matches each platform that you deploy to. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's very much the... Um, React Native style philosophy and not the Flutter style philosophy. Flutter right. renders the same pixels everywhere. Mm. Um, so that definitely has its pros and cons. Sure. Probably means a bit more work for a, a developer to test on each platform. But, you know, for end users, it can be a better experience. Um, but yeah, and, and then when we add in the further possibility of using Blazor rendered, you know, web rendered components via the Blazor programming model, right. reusing your existing Blazor components that deploy to web, that creates a lot of combinations of possibilities, right. mm -hmm. um, which is both excellent and also potentially a lot of work. Yeah. I found the Blazor Maui hybrid scenario to work so much better because I had been coding Blazor for a yep. long, long time, so much easier than trying to figure out the platform specific stuff for each yeah. little UI thing. Um, what comes to mind is like setting the background color oh, of a yeah. button. You'd think that would be easy in, in Maui, XAML, but you have to write native code for that uh, for each platform. Right. So you end up with these pragma if statements. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and then you could just do a CSS thing in Blazor and you're done. But I also like the way that um, you can use Blazor to build native Windows Forms and, and WPF apps. I actually did a Blazor train on this. And if you go to Blazor train, I believe it's episode 71. 
But uh, I have a, a, a repo, uh, Carl Franklin slash WPF Blazer on GitHub, where I basically showed doing that, building a WPF app. And what's cool is that I'm calling JavaScript from C Sharp, calling C Sharp from JavaScript, calling Razor components from WPF, calling WPF windows from Razor components, yeah. uh, include third-party Blazor components, handling cascading parameters, uh, adding an imports Razor file, adding global statements to app XAML CS, like all of these things that you would think about doing in a Blazor app, but it's native code. Yeah, it, it works nicely. It, it, it really does. Yeah, and w- this is not really new to us in a way. This is like the third version of Blazor yeah. for desktop apps that we've done, yeah. but this is the first truly supported one where we've really gone to complete all the all the bits that are needed for it to be really productive. Now, is this based on Web Window, which is your project? It is not based on Web Window, but it's that not. is one of the previous incarnations of yeah. of this idea. So, yeah, I mean, Web Window was like what maui would be if you were only allowed to use web ui maui uh, allows you to use whatever combination of native and web ui you want together so you don't just have necessarily a single web view you could have a set of native tabs each of which has got a different web view in it or you could have a native dialogue that comes up and just one part of it is rendered through web or you can render it all through web like as a developer you just get to choose what combination right meets your needs for code reuse and and like blazor you you have the full operating system at your command if you're in a WPF app or Windows Forms app. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so absolutely. It's, there's no WebAssembly. It's not Blazor Server either. It's just yeah. regular native code. You do what yeah, you want. it's a totally different thing. And even back in the web window days when you came out with that blog post, you basically you know, said to Electron, neener, neener, neener. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, the, the, the performance and the, the download size. Yeah. Like it was... yeah, I mean, Electron has made this choice to include the browser binaries with yeah. the application and there are pros and cons to that sure when they started it was a definite winning move because there were so much browser diversity yeah. that the being able to tell developers you just code against this one browser which is the same one that you're testing against locally mm-hmm. and it will always work that was really compelling back then mm-hmm. but i think that less in, relevant now yeah because you know any machine is going to um well certainly on windows you're going to have edge installed which is it's in turn based on chromium yeah and so you know and the, you probably have chrome and it's yeah. chromium it's there's not that much difference between yeah. these browsers anymore probably the only one that you're really going to have to think about is safari as you mentioned sure. before uh, and when it comes to running on a mac yeah you you will be on wk webkit or whatever mm. the yep. web view the mm. and that's is based on safari but it's, it works pretty nicely. Like the performance of the web view on, on Mac is really, really good. Like it'll start up near yeah. instantly and it has very low memory overhead. So awesome. as long as you're just doing typical HTML and CSS stuff and you're not trying to, you know, push it with like the very latest JavaScript features, then you probably have a pretty good time. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have time for anything else that might be we could look forward to in .NET 7 for Blazor that we haven't mentioned yet. Um, yeah, all right. So in .NET 7, well, we've got a lot of stuff lined up that we are considering working on. Um, uh, a relatively simple thing that we want to do is finish productizing the custom elements support mm-hmm. for Blazor. So it's kind of supported-ish in .NET 6, but with a... What is a uh, custom element? So in, in HTML, you know, your normal elements, divs and paragraph tags and buttons and stuff like that. But for many years, it's been possible to define custom elements. You know, you can have the call button if you want to that behaves like a normal button, except it, you know, 
flashes red whenever your mouse gets near it. I don't yeah. know. And you define that using JavaScript, and uh, then you just use it like a normal HTML element. And that's great. It's particularly great for interop across frameworks. Right. So if you have got, let's say, an Angular component that you make available as a custom element, then you can use that whether you're using Vue or React or plain HTML, because it's just HTML, and, yeah. and HTML can be rendered by Vue, even if it's then in turn turns out to be an Angular component mm. behind the scenes. And so we are adding the ability for those custom elements to be backed by Blazor components. So you can take well. a Blazor component, turn it into a custom element, use it in Angular, Vue, React, whatever. Yeah, you, that's right. You could do that today, though, right? You've done it six? Um, you can mostly do that today. We've added 99% of the infrastructure needed for it, but we didn't productize the actual custom element wrapper ah. around that. But it's, you know, it's already available open source, so yeah, you yeah. can do it. Uh, but yeah, we want to finish productizing that. Um, what else? We're looking at some of the enhancements to WebAssembly as well, like multithreading, which we just mentioned right. earlier on. Um, and also in that space, things like improving the AOT compilation. Today, when you AOT compile, it's all or nothing. It's like your whole application or none of it. And that's not great because it, you pay extra in terms of publish time to do that AOT compilation also your app becomes bigger from doing it. So it would be nicer if you could just AOT compile the physics library or whatever it is that's the most perf-critical part of your application. I just mm -hmm. actually did a .NET show on native yeah. AOT. Oh, yeah. And going down that rabbit hole, I found like the history of going all the way back to NGen in the .NET yeah. framework, which is just for Windows now. But And then you've got the... Uh, the, the newer stuff that's been used in, in .NET, mm -hmm. even in .NET 5 and .NET yep. 6, cross-gen, cross-gen 2. Uh, and then here comes native AOT, yep. which is different again. Yeah. And where does the, 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 I think is it cross-gen is what's used for Blazor for WebAssembly AOT or is that a different thing altogether? No, it's a different thing. So the, the technology behind Blazor WebAssembly's AOT is derived from, um, the Mono project historically. So hmm. you know that, Mono. It's like Mono AOT. Yeah, so yeah. Mono obviously wanted to run on platforms like Apple Watch, which does not allow any kind of JIT compilation. Yeah. So they had to implement AOT many, right. many years ago. Right. And that's slowly evolved and refined, and, and that has become what is now Blazor WebAssembly's AOT story. Um, but there are there are experiments going on. There's, a, there's an entirely separate implementation of .NET to WebAssembly AOT that people are looking at at the moment, which is part of the native AOT project. So it probably will come under the native AOT umbrella at some point. It could well do. Yeah, we don't. We haven't got a conclusion about what will mm. become. And this that. is a speed thing. Is this a you know? What's the big advantage when you when you compile? Is it smaller? It's not smaller. It's bigger. So, okay. it but in memory, it's smaller. It could okay. Be. Yeah, it could yeah. be. Yeah. yeah. So it turns out that .NET IL is a very very compact instruction format. Which is funny when you think yeah. about it. Like you didn't expect it to be that lean. Yeah. Yeah, it's because it's high level. It can describe a lot of operations in a in a you know, by using the bytes to represent a lot of different operations. Right. Mm. Whereas if you go to a smaller instruction set, then you need more instructions to yes. say what you're doing. Which is basically what you're doing when you get, when you, when you, uh, you know, ahead of time compile it. Yeah. Now you've got all the instructions. Exactly. Yeah. You're going to yeah. get some size, but you're going to get some speed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we found that, um, the, the, perf what I did was I did, uh, 10,000 iterations of a 10,000 Fibon number of Fibonacci oh, yeah. sequence. And I found the performance was close, pretty close, but but the startup time was better yep. with AOT, and it took up 
much less memory. So it was okay. something about seven megabytes versus eleven megabytes. Or okay, about that. So that was like JIT allocated space when it was doing the compilation well, that it never gave back. Not only that, yeah, not only that, but it didn't have to load all the the the, the CLR right. and all that stuff with it. So because it created a independent executable, executable yeah. with no dependencies. Interesting. Yeah, whereas the the cross gen stuff creates a sort of a hybrid, right? Doesn't it? It's uh, some stuff is jitted and some is native. This is honestly outside the scope of stuff yeah, I really yeah. know about, so I can't. I really think that's the case, yeah. though. And so, but so you can still do reflection and things like that that mm -hmm. are jitted, but with native AOT, there is no you can't do reflection emit. You know, so that's a drawback. Yeah, but it, it pressures us as framework developers to cr make sure that there are reflection-free ways of achieving yes. stuff that you want. And yes. certainly the big tool that we've got for that is source generators. Yep. And we use that more and more in ASP.NET Core to, to pre-generate a, a static representation of what your application does at compile time right. for things like dependency injection and so on. That's yep. actually one of the enhancements we're looking at for Blazor in .NET 7 is pre-generating all the logic that assigns component parameters instead of doing it through reflection. Yeah. Yeah, very good. So you're done here. Yeah. What what happens now? Go what to happens Disney now? World? I go to sleep. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. What's next in your inbox when you go um, back to work? Well, I'm I'm off to um, KubeCon shortly, so I need to make sure I've got some fun things to talk about there. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've got uh, really we we're getting started on Donut Seven. Uh, properly now. Mm -hmm. You might think we would have been working on that for a while already, but we've been very focused on Maui yeah. uh, for a long time. So the team is uh, is really picking up its work on .NET 7. Um, so that's going to be the main focus for a little while, I would say. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, Steve, thanks very much. It's been a yeah. pleasure talking to you. Keep doing the amazing, awesome things. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being awesome. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time in .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a